You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Deep Tran. And I'm Jose Solis. And we're your token theater friends. Two friends who love theater so much. That we podcast. Two videos. Write about. And review it. So, Jose, I'm really sorry that I ranted about the Tony Awards and I didn't tell you. I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. I mean, like, I understand that it was, like, very urgent. Like, I mean, there were lots of feelings and opinions to be had and felt immediately after that i get it it's okay it's okay i understand but good thing we have a weekly podcast so today you can talk about your tony feelings i'm just gonna say ditto to what you said <laughs> like basically ditto i don't get it also i'm just like rooting for everyone from slave play basically why do they even do it I think it's good to recognize those shows. My question is, what can they be doing better? Oh my god, I don't even know. Because like, it was like a failure when they didn't do it when it was you know original schedule to happen. Like they could have done like I don't know like a Zoom, like all the other awards did. Um, they could have just like not do nominees and just announce like the winners, or they could have just done like a top. I guess the thing is that if they had showed better leadership, which is something that we have been talking about, like, oh, you know, we talked about it all summer long, it would be a little bit easier, I guess, to kind of want to figure out something that they could have done better. But since they, like, fucked up every single step, like, all the way, I don't even know. Okay, now since they screwed all the process leading to this, the only thing that they can do to uh, fix this is actually I don't know, reward like people who need awards, if that makes sense. Reward the slave play. Yeah. And also like, I mean, I love Catherine Zuber, for instance, like she's a great costume designer, but don't give her another Tony, you know, like pick someone who's like in her category. I don't even remember, but pick someone who hasn't won before or pick someone who might benefit from a Tony win. Like, I'm very, very disappointed in what they did to the Lightning Thief. Like, that was just, like, petty and just, like, so bitchy. <laughs> and it was just mean. You've told me this offline, but I'd love if you explained to our listeners 
why the lightning thief snub seems really petty. It seems very petty because it was, for instance, it was the uh, only completely original musical this past season, and that means that it wasn't a jukebox musical, basically. Although it was based on, you know, like a book and like films and all of that. When they actually had the opportunity to nominate what was the only original score for a musical last season and reward this one, like they did with Aaron Tveit in the Best Actor category, they instead chose to nominate music from plays. <laughs> and there's like five nominees from like plays, like music from background plays. I mean, and I have great respect for all those composers and obviously I have great I'm not saying that the music in a play is you know lesser than the music in a musical but how can you be so freaking petty that in a category that's like ideally designed for musicals you refuse to nominate like the only original musical on Broadway that season but then also like in the best actor in a musical category like I mean like everyone knew that it was you know like Aaron Tveit and Chris McCarroll, like from The Lightning Thief, were the only lead actors eligible in a musical this season. And they just went ahead and like nominated Aaron on his own, which is, again, super petty. During a time when everything seems to be falling apart, like there's all those like battles between like the uh, unions, actors, and theater makers out of work. Why refuse to like celebrate more people, like even if you don't necessarily like love them? I don't get it. It's just, it's kind of like a bad omen, I guess, for like theater not changing, you know, like commercial theater not changing if things ever reopen. Like old systems just going back to what they were. And mm-hmm. it's very discouraging because mm-hmm. like right now, the one thing that awards, industry awards should be doing is giving people hope and giving people something to look forward to. And instead, like people were just like pissed. Did you see anyone who was like super happy with like the the nominations? The people who are nominated. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, great point. I don't mean to like pick on shows or anything, but when you can go out of your way to nominate, you know, uh, I forgot her name, and I'm sorry, like I don't mean it as any form of, of uh, disrespect, but when you nominate. A featured actress from Moulin Rouge, who, do you remember her in the show? I mean, she basically danced in, like, the uh, tango and uh, Born This Way scene, right? Did she really have, like, enough to do in order to get a nomination? And again, this is not about the quality of her work or anything, but it's, like, a character that's, like, barely there. And then you have the lead actor (laughs) in a musical... And then you refuse to nominate someone who's like in basically every scene in the musical. Like, I don't get it. It's just incredibly petty. Like, I don't know who Percy Jackson hurt. (laughs) Show me on this doll, Tony nominators, where Percy Jackson hurt you. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, because people, people were saying on Twitter that, oh, well, the Tonys aren't a participation award. Except this year they are. Like, they were, like, scraping at the bottom of the barrel for these nominees. Better example would be Lois Smith in The Inheritance for Best Featured Actress, and she was in it for maybe 10 minutes. 
out of seven hours. That's so. That- <laughs> love, love Lois Smith. Love Lois Smith. And the, all the things I've seen her in, including off Broadway, would that is not the best thing she's ever done. No. But also, like, I do remember that we talked about how she was the, uh, like, thing that we could salvage from the show. <laughs> so I kind of get it. But I have to be honest. Like, I was very, you know, because, like, I, you know, I'm not even going to say the name of the show because I, I don't want to get in trouble with all the white gays. Uh, but I was very surprised to realize. And I didn't realize uh, until, like, a few days later. Like, I didn't realize, I didn't notice it in the moment that they didn't nominate, like, the official, like, lead guy. In that show, like, they nominated the other guy instead. I was very surprised about that. Oh, yeah. What's up with that? You hadn't noticed either? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I am so sorry. Like, uh, I don't mean anything against, you know, it's not about the actors. It's just very surprising because this actor even won the uh, Olivier in England. So, Whoa, that's true. Yeah. I, like this, I feel like the snubs this year are just so notable because the pool isn't very big. Like some years we can just say, oh, well, you know, a lot of competition. But this year there literally was not a lot of competition. Yeah. I mean, like even Best Actor in a Play, for instance, like they had six nominees. So like they clearly <laughs> were finding even like enough room for people, which is like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like very deliberate, but also very... It kind, you know what it feels like to be honest like it kind of feels like the mean girls like bullying and showing proving their power to like the nerds and like who they think are the losers in a way yeah and i think you made a, a point in like another conversation we had about how this just shows this year really clearly shows the politics behind all of it that it's not necessarily always about oh you did the best job therefore you should be nominated it's we like you as a person or you didn't make any of us mad so we're gonna say your name yeah and like also what really uh makes me sad is that right now when it's like we're seeing younger people and younger theater artists who are keeping theater alive and by refusing to nominate for instance a show like the lightning thief which, which is you know which has younger audiences in mind it's kind of like they're telling young people like we don't want you here like we don't need you it's like the exact same thing they did with be more chill uh last year it's very depressing i don't know it's very i don't know like maybe it's impossible to fix them (laughs) i guess for our younger viewers when theater comes back give off broadway your money because broadway obviously does not care about you Oh, oh, it's just so no. So you're telling me that Andrew Burnap got nominated, but Kyle Soler did not? Yes. Whoa! Right? Oh, that's weird. Right? And I mean, like, Andrew uh, Burnap was, like, really great. As someone who knows the kind of flack that people who nominate people for awards get, I shouldn't be so, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't be so mean. And I shouldn't be, like, so, like, what was, what the fuck was wrong with you? But uh, but what the fuck was wrong with you? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Isn't hasn't that been the theme of the uh, past six months of this podcast? I mean, I would say since we started, that's what we have <laughs> yeah. been asking like every episode. So yeah, but I mean, I hope Adrian Warren and Jeremy O'Harris get their Tonys, and you know everything's gonna be all right. Slave play, like that's the only plus about this entire thing is like slave play got 
the most nominations. And I really don't think it would have gotten that much if the pool had been bigger and if we weren't within this moment of racial reckoning. Even if the play isn't universally beloved within the black community, I think it matters that Jeremy might get his Tony Award because the last one who got one was the last black player who got a Tony Award was August Wilson in the 80s. Oh my God, that's so embarrassing for them. Like, yeah, you need to fix yourselves, Tony said. Give it to Jeremy. Yeah. At the very least, he'll wear something really nice. I mean, yeah, totally. Like, it was like such a cop out also that they didn't even like announce when the awards were going to be. <laughs> um, I heard that they're still finagling with CBS because CBS doesn't want to broadcast it because the Tonys get shitty ratings every single year. Like, out of all the award shows, it gets the lowest ratings. And so there, and this year, there's no financial reason for CBS to do it. Now, imagine, you know, I didn't know that, but now imagine if Broadway producers had been better at handling money and being less greedy, and the unions and everyone had worked together. And over the summer, all the shows that ran on Broadway uh, would have been like recorded and then streamed. They would have, they would have been able to make the Tonys like a nationwide thing, like the Oscars and the Emmys, right? Or like this is like a decades long issue of Broadway just turning itself completely irrelevant for the most part, aside from Hamilton. Like, if they had been able to maintain their relevance, they wouldn't had they wouldn't be having a hard time asking for federal money right now. <laughs> Yeah. It's just decades of of just like producers not being able to have a bigger vision for the industry beyond their little pocket of money and beyond their little show. Yeah, maybe to fix the Tonys, we would have to fix like the entire, you know, like capitalist system and then like it's a never ending, you know, task basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should talk about something that makes us happy instead. Yes. What can we talk about that will take us to, you know, an American utopia? <laughs> oh my God, that's such a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. We can talk about David Byrne. And we... Did you see this on Broadway, by the way? I don't remember. No, I didn't. Oh my God, you didn't? No, because I was not one of those cool people who got an invitation. It was a very exclusive invitation. And Broadway is very elitist, so... Did, I did not make that list. You made that list, though. This disc, probably. American Utopia is a show that kind of basically takes David Byrne's album and transforms it into... Uh, oh, my God. I'm going to sound like such an asshole like describing this show. But it kind of takes the album and transforms it into this like beautiful, metaphysical, miraculous experience in which... It's kind of like being at, at a rock concert, but that like meets performance art, meets, I don't know, meets like spirituality, meets science, meets amazing costumes and set design. And it's also like one of the uh, most diverse ensembles that Broadway had that season, I think, because it's obviously it's David Byrne at the center, but he has this like huge band it's kind of like a Beyonce band right like there's like so many like different instruments and he makes all the members of the band like have key parts to play I mean they're not playing characters but like everyone gets a chance to shine I would say 
Like this is like a show where you you remember, you know, what everyone's doing on stage because everyone gets to be in a spotlight. So I'm not making much sense with this because it's plotless. It's more kind of like a. It's a concert film. It's a concert or a cabaret. Yeah, you know, and the way it's filmed is like a concert and cabaret. Yeah, but also, it feels like it does more than that. I sound like a huge fanboy, and one of the things that actually really surprised me about this show was that you know I'm a very casual like David Byrne fan. Like I like a few Talking Head songs and like a few of his songs, but I don't really like know you know like all his like work and. I adored the show. Even the songs that I didn't know too well, everything was like so wonderful. Did that happen to you also? Like, did you were you either like a fan of him, or did you uh, know a lot about him? Or uh, yeah, I'm like you. I've never been like a huge David Byrne fan. I mean, the, I think the thing of his that I love the most is "Here Lies Love," his Imelda Marcos musical, because those songs were very catchy and. Ruthie Ann Miles just does it for me. <laughs> but other than that, I-, I came into this experience like knowing all the hype around it, but still very skeptical just because, oh, it's, you know, one dude talking and singing. So what, what, how is this going to be interesting? And I was actually surprised like how riveted I was by the entire thing as a theatrical experience because of his ability to tie what seems to be very disparate songs together around a central theme and the way he was able to make it relevant politically and socially to our moment right now. And I think the songs without the context of David's narration around it wouldn't have been as compelling for me. Yeah, absolutely. Because he kind of is like uh, Marion Williamson can't type right i mean he's not like cookie and like he's not talking about crystals and about like you know like the stars all the time but he kind of has like that really like uncle who was like a hippie and who you know did like, oh, a yeah. lot of peyote when he was young yes right? <laughs> he's like your cool <laughs> uncle yeah. <laughs> yeah. he totally is so he has that vibe going on and you know like when i was watching it on uh on hbo for instance like remember when it starts and he's holding a brain and it's like mm-hmm. almost like a Hamlet uh, nod, but also he starts talking about how uh, as we get older, like when we're babies, we have like a gazillion brain connections, like neural connections going on in our brain. And as we get older, like they start you know, like disappearing, like we get dumber. And I really like the way that he uh, he combines so many things that America. Uh, itself tells itself and people tell themselves that they are not compatible I mean he marries against science and religion and you know sexual orientation and race and all these things that are the things that have this country divided right now and people fighting over um, basically the right of (laughs) you know like the right everyone has to be treated with uh, respect and humanity and he weaves them into this like beautiful like conversation. And the point that I'm trying to make with this is that that thing about the brain immediately made me think about this. But there's a, a belief maybe in some sort of Christian uh, 
branch. Again, I'm making a mess out of this, but I promise I have a point. Where they say that before babies are born, the angel Gabriel grabs the babies uh, and whispers all the secrets of the universe in their ear. And then he kisses them on the forehead and then he sends them into earth. And as he sends them into earth, they start forgetting all the secrets. And that's kind of what uh, what David is describing with science. And that's what I love so much about the show, that it, you know, it reminds people that there are much less, you know, that we have much more in common than we have not in common, that the things that make us different are less so than the things that we share. Yeah, I, I think I think you can even see that in the design of the piece because it's David Byrne, but he's also surrounded by like his musicians and background singers, and everyone's dressed in a gray suit. But at the same time, like they're allowed to have like really fun hairstyles <laughs> and individual ways of performing, and so it feels like the meta part. Within the design, it feels like he's talking about how like we're all connected. If we all come together, we can commit to we can symbiotically create something beautiful. But we are also all individuals, and we can put our individuality into that as well. Yeah, and it doesn't feel kumbaya, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like a we are the world situation. It's not that bad. Yeah, and that's you know that's for me the uh, that's why I was like. It's very hard for me to like describe the show because like I was like I'm gonna sound like an asshole because if you but I try to describe it like it does sound like we are in the world and it's so not that I have to say that I was very impressed uh, because what's what Spike Lee did in the uh, film adaptation because before I started watching it like you know one of the things that I was like wondering about like I remember you know the first thing that you noticed obviously when when you went to the Hudson Theater was the massive curtain. And it had all these like illustrations that, if I'm not mistaken, uh, David himself drew. I might be wrong. I'm not sure. Like, don't quote me on that. And that was like the first thing that you saw, and it was like overwhelming. And you would see people like, you know, in their seats, like zooming in with their phones to try to take pictures of all the little icons. When I was like uh, waiting for the HBO trailers to be done and the show to start. I was like, oh, man, like, I'm going to be sorry that they're not going to be able to show how cool the current was. And instead, what Spike Lee does instantly is that he does what people were doing. He zooms into, like, the little figures and, like, the little cartoons. And I don't think I have seen a more inventive, uh, you know, use of the camera to capture a live experience as it did with this. Yes. Yes. It was like what Spike Lee did when he did Passover, mm-hmm. but which was on Amazon Prime, by the way, which you all <laughs> should watch. Uh, when, he, when he did Passover, which is like there's some really inventive camera placements that adds to the experience. Because most of what film theater is, is, you know, you just want to capture what happened on stage in like a way that's compelling. Mm-hmm. But what Spike Lee did that that's interesting is like he adds another layer onto it where he shows you things that you would have never seen as an audience member. S- such as when he shows performers entering the stage even before you sitting in the audience would mm-hmm. have seen them enter. <laughs> and so like there's like a value added to it that isn't just like I'm, I'm filming this piece of theater it, it's like giving you like an insider look into a show yeah like you know like there's many moments where he shoots from behind that like uh, what is it like this like chainmail curtain that uh, the mm-hmm. 
I don't know what that's called, but it's like a very thick, like metallic curtain. And like, I remember when I was, you know, at the theater, like, I was like, I wonder what's behind that. Uh, and then like Spike Lee shoots from behind that, like facing, you know, the audience and seeing David and the other performers from their backs. And it kind of tries to give both the audience members, but also in a way the people in the show, uh, the opportunity to do what the show itself does, which is like to, to be allowed to have a point of view. Yeah. And especially at the, at the very end when he takes you backstage to, to like everyone just congratulating each other. And then David Byrne like bikes home on his bike. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, this is so cute. <laughs> Stars, they're just like us. Did you have a favorite but, like song in the, in the show? Like Road to Nowhere has always been like my favorite Talking Heads song. And he closes with that. And I just, I feel like the way that song was presented by... David Byrne and the artists, the musicians going out into the audience and interacting with the audience, it really showed why it had to be a theatrical experience and not just like a concert experience because the entire point of the show and David, as David explained, was to have people witnessing each other in an intimate setting. And I love that it really, that he really brought that point home by going out into the audience. Right, wasn't this like the strange? Because you know, like usually, like when there's a pop star, like a rock star, who does like a residency on Broadway, like we just trust them immediately because we're just like, oh, they want to make money, right? This is like the only one that hasn't felt like that that I've seen. Well, this is the only one I've seen where it made the case for it for why it's in a Broadway theater and why it's not just like a Madison Square Garden. <laughs> oh, I have a question for you though. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was your favorite hairstyles? Which in the show? Yeah. Everyone had amazing mm-hmm. hair. That's what I noticed. I don't even know. Uh, I mean, I rewatched it last night, and all I can think of right now is, like, when you asked me that, all I thought of, like, why were they wearing shoes? <laughs> <laughs> why not? I'm sure David Byrne doesn't wear shoes at home. I'm sure he's one of those people. Smart people. Good people. I mean, but home is home. Like, a, you know, like a 2,000-year-old, like, Broadway theater isn't home. I kind of like, you know, I'm going to be like very like lazy and like, I love David Burns hairstyle. It's like, so, you know, as I'm getting grayer and grayer, like that kind of like effortless, cool gray is what I wish I could pull off. Yeah. But I think also like there was this guy with drums. Yes. Yeah. He was my favorite too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Hi, Gustavo. Call me. <laughs> call one of us. We're single. Where was he from? I forget. It's like everyone basically was from like somewhere like. Uh, He's from Brazil. Oh. Oh, yeah. I know. Take me to Rio, <laughs> Gustavo. <laughs> Come be our friend. All right. Do you have any other thoughts about American Utopia? You know, I was very surprised that the second that I that it ended, I was like, I'm looking forward to having this play, you know, like either to like sit down and watch it again, or I'm looking forward to having this play in the background while I do things around my apartment because it, it's a show that it really made me just so happy. Yeah, same. I think it really reminded us how important it is to be connected to other people. And considering how divisive we all are, people are politically, it's a good message. It is a message that I hope people on the right will appreciate, though they probably won't. 
because otherwise they would not be trolling Heidi Shrek on oh Amazon God. Prime. Well, she predicted it. Yep, she she did. Uh, you want to intro our guest? Yeah, but before that, I was I want to say you know like the Tonys could have fixed themselves by giving American Utopia best musical. <laughs> yeah, why was it not nominated? I don't know. I think it maybe wasn't eligible. Like maybe they uh, removed themselves from consideration or whatever because they didn't want to invite all the voters. I'm sure David Byrne like could get like an honorary thing like Bruce Springsteen did. Well, I mean, what's the point of like there's no, no one's going to be watching it anyway. I know. And I don't think David Byrne gives a shit. So. Or he's going to recycle it. <laughs> Our guests for uh, this week are playwright and screenwriter Chisa Hutchinson and actor Anthony Ellis. Chisa Hutchinson wrote a movie called The Subject, which is like a really interesting take on the line that documentarians refused to cross in the name of objectivity. And she tells a really fascinating story about a white documentary filmmaker who chooses to capture something with his camera in order to create art instead of doing something good for a person. And Anjanou plays... I don't, I don't even want to spoil anything about it because like, it's such an interesting plot. We talked to them and they were both like really, really cool. Yeah, and if you love Ingenue from Lovecraft Country, she is really good in this, too. She's just really good in anything. <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. Like, I'm sorry that the movie doesn't really have distribution yet. I know! Get on it! But in the meantime, let's go check out the interview. Welcome, Chisa Hutchinson and Ingenue Ellis. Uh, off the subject, I am so... We're so excited to have you both here. Can you talk a little bit about the subject? Chisa, I've seen a lot of your plays... But uh, I've never actually seen one of your screenplays turn into a movie before. Again, one of my favorite things about it was that it builds and it ends up almost being like a play. Well, first, you haven't seen any of my movies because this is the first one to be produced. <laughs> and it feels like a play because it started as a play. started as basically homework in graduate school. I started this play because I had seen a news piece, I guess you can call it, some kind of journalistic something. I don't even know what to call it. A journalist decided that she was going to be homeless for two weeks. It just struck me as really, just it was icky. Just something something was really icky about it, just watching this woman, like, you know, walk around and and eat out of trash cans and, and curl up on the street, but, like, with a camera crew following her around. And commenting on it, like, oh, this is what these people do. Like, this is how life is for these people. Yeah, I just wanted to, I, you know, I was sort of ruminating on that. And I wanted to write something that sort of walked that line between exploration and exploitation. Was, yeah, and then Phil came, popped into my head. <laughs> um, the, the main character in the subject. And um, yeah, I just, just ran with it. And what does it feel like to put yourself inside a white man's head? It did not come easy. And I got to say, like, this is more than any other um, script that I've ever written. Like, I've, this one I did the most drafts of because I was not kind to, to Phil in previous drafts. He was a lot, a lot less likable um, in earlier drafts. And I was just, um, and with each draft, I was, like, really just trying to, 
all right, let me just humanize this guy. You know, like he doesn't think of himself as a bad guy. So I, I have to treat him thusly. Yeah, I think this final iteration is is okay. He's not like, he's not a total bad guy, you know, but you also are a little bit like, oh, 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 bad choice. Oh, wrong choice. Oh, no, dude, don't, no, not that, right? So yeah, it's been a struggle. It's a struggle in getting inside the white man's head. I feel like we kind of have to if we're going to survive at this point. Anjanu, this character, Leslie, and, and the subject, in a way, joins a family of sorts of characters that you have been playing recently. You know, I love Mrs. Hunt and Beale Street so much. And I also do. you're... I like Miss Hunt too. <laughs> And also, you know, uh, obviously Hippolyta and the character that you played in When They See Us. And you have been playing mothers, basically, who don't understand, who can't fathom the way in which the world is treating their children. And watching the subject, especially after all the policemen who murdered Breonna Taylor just went home, back to their normal lives without any sort of justice being made struck me like I felt Leslie's pain even more. It was so harrowing to watch the movie after that had happened. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about this, about the sense in, you know, through your work and trying to convey the pain of seeing injustice constantly, you know, happen. I don't shy. I love playing. I love playing mothers. I'm sure other actors don't want to do that like they feel like it ages them or something like that they want to you know be seen as just the not just I don't want to demean anybody or reduce anybody to anything but I guess they think it makes them less um less sexy I don't know what other way to say that you know and, and and I say that because, and it's not a reflection of their character. Actors, I think, probably make that choice because it's such a limit in terms of how the limitations, such limitations that are put on women in terms of casting in the first place. So it's like you're a mother or you're a sex pot. You're, it's, I, it's so limiting. I've never felt that pressure at all. I've always gravitated towards things that I just like doing or gravitated toward checks so I can keep my rent paid or I love playing women that when they walk in the room the 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 they change the atmosphere in the room and all of these women in some way do that and I also will say I you're right I am playing these mothers who cannot accept how the world is treating their children you said that so gracefully and I approach each mother in terms of her own experience. Hippolyta um, is not Sharon Salam, and when they see us and none of them are Mrs. Hunt if Bill Street could talk, you know. I try to meet them where they are and go for their, go go on their rides. And I just, I enjoy doing that. I, I enjoy doing that. I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do, if that makes any sense, Yeah. Back to what Jose was speaking about, about like reflecting these real life mothers who have also seen their children be unjustly harmed. Like, yeah. do, you, do you feel like you're representing them or you're giving that or you're influenced by them? I don't want to make these women a monolith. And I think that's what happens when these when you see these characters, when the way that they are portrayed, 
you know, it, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's, it's a trope. The grieving mother, the mother, black woman grieving over her murdered child. It's become a trope at this point. And the reason why it's become a trope, first of all, it happens, it's less that it's happening in the world, but it's also because of, like I said, the limitations that, that the limitations of the imaginations of the writers. So this is something that I wanted to say before. What I think that Chisa did and did it so wonderfully is that in the in the in the gamut of how of, of of white supremacy, where does Phil fall? You know what I mean. And so he falls in this like really annoying <laughs> cavity of white liberalism. I'm doing the good thing here. You know what I mean? My God, you know they 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 are as much an enemy as someone who wears a hood on their on their faces. Um, and so what's important that important in what Chisa did is just sort of exploring that idea of white liberalism and showing what it looks like and revealing itself to itself and saying, no, you're not what you think you are. And I think that's the voice that Leslie is. That's, the, that's her voice is speaking to that assumption of what's good, of what they think is their goodness. There's something that I, I thought about a lot when I was watching the film, and it's like I I always get very angry when I watch documentaries, and there's this thing that I call the lie of objectivity, where, like, the filmmaker is like, I'm on my pedestal, and I cannot intervene, and then they just let horrible things happen in front of them, but because they're doing their big art project, and they're doing something, you know, more important than life, so to speak, according to them, they almost like forget their own humanity and both of you as artists who move, you know, on stage and on screen. I wonder if there are things about the idea of objectivity in theater and in film that you're like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Like, let's try to like dismantle this. Do I have a perspective? Yes. <laughs> like, um, do I own it? Yes. But I, I'm, I'm, I am very careful about um, how I share it. Um, because I don't want to be condescending. I don't, and I also don't want to preach to the choir. You know, I don't want it to be just like, well, you all share my values. <laughs> so let me just speak to y'all. You know, it's, it's, I, I really think about how I can get people who don't really give a shit about people like me to give a shit about people like me. Um, and, I, and, and I start with the presumption of like, okay, you don't share my values. Like you're not a believer in, maybe even you think you are like Phil does, right? But you're, you're not actually a believer in um, all lives are precious. You know, all life has value. Like you, you maybe think you do, but let me show you how you don't actually. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's important to, to own your perspective when you're creating art, because otherwise, what's the, what's the point? What's your agenda, I guess? Like, I feel like all art should have an agenda, damn it. <laughs> um, and if it doesn't, then it's just sort of, so, I don't know, what is that? Self-indulgent fluff, right? She said, I think you should, I would love for you to tell that story that you told me about the journalist in 
I think this story happened in somewhere in, I sound really ignorant right now, somewhere in Africa. It was either Rwanda or Uganda. The Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who took that picture of the young girl, the toddler, she's totally emaciated and she's um, just sitting in the dust. You know what I'm talking about, right? Kevin Carter. So he, um, like in an interview, I think said something like, yeah, I waited. This is like, it upsets me every time I think about it, but like, yeah, I waited 20 minutes for the the vulture to spread its wings because there's a vulture like behind the child just waiting for her to die, right? (laughs) He's like, yeah, I waited 20 minutes for the vulture to spread its wings. It never did. So I just took the picture and went on my way. (laughs) And it's just like... (laughs) I have no I have no words right or like all the words that I had you know I put into the play (laughs) how do you let that happen like how how, and how does that not affect your soul which apparently it did because then short you know just a few months after getting the Pulitzer for taking that photo he committed suicide right so there is some there's danger right in not acknowledging the humanity of your subjects there's always the danger of you losing your own humanity right when you treat other people not as people right but like as objects there for your for the purposes of your art or for the purposes of um your ego (laughs) right you can't let your ego win out over your humanity I, I'm interested also um, in the idea of spectator and witness. So, dude who took the picture, he was he was being he was being a spectator. But I think about the young woman who took the video when George Floyd was being was being tortured and murdered, and she was a witness, and she knew that her witness was going to. Um, was important. It had value. People needed to know what was happening to this man. In terms of this idea of, you know, uh, objectivity, I think as people who make make art or make take the pictures or do the films or are an actor or whatever, we have to be clear that we're not just spectators, that we are witnesses. Because if you're a witness in, to me and my imagination, you are implicit in what's happening. You know, you are implicit, complicit. You are a part of what's happening. You bear responsibility for what's happening. That's what Chisa speaks to in in the subject. And I think that that's what Leslie is saying to to Phil, that my son needed a witness, but you acted as, you acted as a spectator. I think the difference for me between a spectator and a witness is stakes. And like, what is at stake for the person who is someone who has something to lose right if they intervene if they if they step in and help right if they if they could lose something if they if they have to sacrifice something um and they're willing to do that like i feel like that's a witness if it costs you nothing to help and you still don't help you are a spectator Pick up that baby. Take that baby to get some baby a banana. Something, right? Like something. Whereas if you don't help, (laughs) it's you have just thrown away your humanity. 
Because I think it all goes back to what you were saying earlier, Tisa, about like white liberalism and that concept of being the neutral party and, and the concept of, oh, my presence here is enough. In the film, Phil gives $10,000 to a black teenager to make himself feel better. Like my presence is enough. My money is enough. I don't need to do anything else. And Jose and I have talked a lot about like to journalism in general and how the whole notion of neutrality is is what also upholds white supremacy because people of color, black people and people of color cannot be neutral when there's injustice happening to the community. Who was one of those Fox blonde ladies probably who said LeBron, like he should just shut up and dribble. Wasn't that her well, line? Ingram. Laura Ingram, honey. Yeah, just shut up and dribble. Like we, that is a demand for neutrality. That is a demand for you know silence in the face of an injustice that doesn't affect you. If it's if it's an injustice that doesn't affect you, right? Then you expect everybody else to just shut the fuck up about it, which is not that ain't it. Like that's not how that works. Like you don't you don't get to tell me to be quiet about something that affects me. <laughs> like that's, that's not a thing. And so I think that people, um, particularly black people right now are like, nah, that ain't it. We have too much at stake now. Like, and it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have, right? If you get pulled over by the wrong cop or if you're just jogging in a neighborhood, <laughs> there's some vigilante person is you know out there ready to shoot me ready to shoot like this is not like oh you know hey can I help you like are you lost do you need directions or whatever no 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 we skip that all together and just head straight for like I, I need to like take you out because I already perceive you as a threat like that's that's where we are who who can remain neutral in that position, you know, who's going to shut up and dribble? Someone like Phil, I guess. Um, I wonder if, you know, as artists, uh, do you think, because I mean, I obviously I love art and I believe that art can change people's hearts and people's minds and people's souls. Do you uh, believe that, uh, you know, right at this moment in your careers that art can actually change people? I want to because otherwise I would just jump off a bridge <laughs> where, right? I wish I were better at anything else, you know, like science, right? Something more useful or more practical or more like, um, but I feel a little bit like, okay, well, I got art. I have words. I have words. That's it. That's all I got. That's all I'm good at. <laughs> so I'm going to have to make this shit work. That's definitely how I feel. I feel ill-equipped, but I do hope, and I am trying every which way I can, right? With my little words, you know, maybe if I put them together this way, huh? <laughs> All right, well, maybe if I, maybe if I did this, huh? You know, <laughs> like, do you care now, right? Um, have I changed a mind? Have, have I helped anyone, right? Ingenue. <laughs> like, I feel like you are more directly plugged into the, because people are actually watching you, and when they see you bring that fierce, ferocious fucking mama energy like into the room, 
onto the screen. I'm like, I'm counting on you. You know what I mean? Like that I'm, I'm like, all right, here are my little words, take them and, and make them mean something to those people. <laughs> right. And like, that's what you do. Um, and I'm just so appreciative. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of that. I'm so grateful for you. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think that, um, it's imperative for word people like yourself to, to speak the truth. And I think that's a weapon. And we have to see that as, as a weapon in this war that we in and that we are in. I think that what Ava DuVernay did with, 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 with When They See Us is a perfect example of that. Um, and, and the reason why is that she told the truth. She told the truth. These young men approached her about telling their story. She told it. And as a result, there were consequences and repercussions. The Mm -hmm. folks lost their book deals. Folks folks lost their positions. And that case was was reimagined, was reimagined by this country as um, as a result of that, as a result of that, uh, of that series being on the air. So, you know, if, if, if it were, I wish I want to do this, that kind of material all the time, because it is a weapon in this battle that we are in. And we have to do more of those. We have to do more of that truth telling and, and, and this, this correction that we have to, um, we have to do, um, in terms of how our stories have been told, and it's not stories. It's it's it is it's the, the events that happened to us have been in the mouths of people who who want to erase us. So they're not going to tell the truth. So now we have to do that when we can, and that's what that's what you're doing, Chisa. So don't 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 devalue that at all. You are a soldier in this. I'm really wondering for you, Anjanou, because for a few years now, you've been advocating for the removal of the Confederate flag in, in, in Mississippi as an insignia, and they finally removed it this past summer. And so what did this, it's a small victory, but it's something that you've been working really hard for in the grand scheme of things, I'm not saying it was a small, a small campaign. It's like a big deal, but for you in the grand scheme of things, like what did that teach you about like persistence? Well, a couple things. For one thing I had, I had pretty much given up on it. And um, I had just said that, you know, I'm tired. I've done everything. If I told you the amount of money that I have spent on, on that effort, you know, I could have bought all kinds of shoes, bought y'all shoes, you know what I mean? Like, we, you know, just would have had probably a more um, lush life if I could have some of that money back that I spent on that effort. And, and then the time and then for quite, to be honest with you, just the depression, just the depression. I've spent many a day not getting out of my bed because I felt, I felt that everything I was doing was futile. And 
So there's that. And but here's 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 what I don't think. And I, I understand what you're saying about the grand scheme of things, that it doesn't figure into the grand scheme of things, but here's what people don't don't get about what the what that flag did. What the flag did was the physical presence of that flag was a proxy for segregation. And that's what people don't understand. They just see it as, oh, this is a symbolism of white supremacy. If you see that flag somewhere, if you are about to go into somewhere to eat at a restaurant and you see that flag outside, you're going to reconsider going in that restaurant. You're going to go somewhere else. And so white folks in Mississippi, they are aware of that. And so that's why they use that flag. They don't have to tell you, you can't come in my restaurant. They just put that flag outside. And then, you know, I'm not welcome here. Or if I come in here, I have to, I'm expected to behave a certain way. So that's what people, people don't misunderstand. People misunderstand that, that the flag was a proxy for segregation. And my position is, is we, if we have made segregation illegal in this country, we should not have proxies for it. So there's that. In terms of how I felt about it, I had been very depressed for a long time. And I had been quarantining in California. I'm back out here now because I have, I have to finish my job. Hopefully that's why I'm here. But anyway, I was out here quarantining. And so I left to go home in, I guess, late July, early August. And I hadn't been home for a couple months, few months. And I drove home, drove from California to Mississippi. And so when I crossed the county line from Louisiana to Mississippi, and I saw the first uh, flagpole that is financed by the state and did not see that flag on that pole, I was dancing, I was singing. I felt like, I felt like a weight I felt like I had lost 35 pounds. I didn't, but I felt like I lost 35 pounds. And, 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 and really, honestly, now I, I, still, I still feel that way. It took up so much of my life. And now sometimes I sit on the couch and go like, mm, what do I do now? You know what I'm saying? Like, cause that was, that was, it was what I was supposed to do. And now at least that, at least that part of the battle has been fought and won. Now, I did a whole lot of stuff, but the reality is, is that these young men who played football in Mississippi, as a result of the torture and murder of George, torture and murder of George Floyd, they said, I'm not playing another game until you guys bring that flag down. This young man named Kylan Hill. And Mississippi got two things going for it, the church and football. And so they knew that if they if they lose football in Mississippi, that's it. So they had to do something. They had to they had to act. And I was so proud because I voted a couple weeks ago and I voted for the new flag. So I was ha- I'm I'm happy about that. I'm very happy. Yeah, I can so thank you for all of your efforts to make sure that the, that hateful symbol is no longer part of any govern- government. They American. still fly it now. They still fly that flag. They fly the, the Mississippi State flag. They got fresh flags. They just bought them. Because that's where I'm from. That's where I live. Yes. <laughs> it's like you tear it out of their cold, dead hands. You understand? <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Okay. 
and it's not even it's like such an ugly flag also i'm i'm like you don't like it's not cute no not at all <laughs> it's not cute. um but anyway uh so this is the part where we wrap up and you uh plug everything you have going on for yourself like i know that proof of love do do we know when the subject's coming out uh on demand or we don't have dates for that yet right <laughs> we're working on it <laughs> uh, yeah it's just it's making the festival rounds right now and you can follow us on i think we have like all the the social media accounts it's um at is it the subject film at the subject film i'm pretty sure that's it <laughs> um yeah on instagram facebook and twitter that's that's where you can find that info um, but yeah, we're still looking for a distributor. But Proof of Love is on Audible, and they can find it there. Right, is on Audible, um, and it's also I think published by Dramas Play Services. Um, What's Proof of Love? Uh, Chief, you Proof want- of Love is um, an audio drama that I wrote for Audible. They commissioned me to write a radio play, and it is um, it is about a a wealthy black woman of a certain age whose husband has um, is comatose now because he's been in a really horrible car accident. And she, um, over the past few days, has been discovering some things about him and herself in the process. <laughs> so yeah, that is on Audible. It's a very short um, listen. If you have the time, I would love, I <laughs> love it if you would I am, girl. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm gonna do, if I don't do that, I'm going to do that tomorrow. That's going to be my thing I do tomorrow. I, that is so cool, Chisa. Yeah. That's so great. And do you know Brenda Presley? Yeah, I feel like I do know Brenda Presley. Is that who played? Everyone, everyone, everyone black in the theater has worked with Brenda Presley at some point, I feel like. I just need to see her. I just need to, let me just see her face. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. um, she is narrating it, and she is a goddess. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I saw her do it live on stage for 90 minutes, and it was riveting. Yeah. And I was I like, I couldn't believe it was her after seeing Shirley, Good and Mercy. And then I was like, this is a, she's a chameleon. I was like. She is. She's incredible. She play literally just before the live production of the Audible play. She was in another play playing a completely different character. Completely different. Like a lunch lady. <laughs> a lunch lady from Newark, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> She's dope. I'm, I see who you're talking about. She's mm-hmm. dope. And and what about you? Lovecraft Country is on HBO every Sunday, and you have some movies coming up soon, and also yeah. secret projects. <laughs> now have no secrets. <laughs> hopefully, we'll be. Hopefully, we can finish this uh, King Richard movie, and um, and that'll come out at some point. So, wish us luck. Thank you both so much. Uh, the subject is really wonderful and you're great in it and she said your words are always like you know like sent from the heavens so thank you both for joining us so much and thank you so much for inviting us thank you thank you both so much hey jose do you want to tell people why they should be supporting us on patreon we have been doing this for a long time and we love doing it but we want to be able to not only you know turn this project into something sustainable and be able to do even more of it 
but we also want to start commissioning writers. We want you also, our dear listeners and audience members, to know that you are our friends. Like we do this because we are part of your friend zone and we want you to be part of our friend zone. So if you go to our Patreon, we have several tiers starting at $1 where you can you know, commit to a dollar, five if you can afford it. Like we know it's pretty hard times for everyone right now. And every week you get bonuses, including a newsletter with like extra recommendations, bonus Q&A, and more goodies. And we want to build something like awesome. Like we want to build a space like right now that we can't meet and, you know, in community and like go to a bar and talk about shows or anything like that. We want to build something kind of like that on Patreon. And if you become a patron of ours, we also give you a shout out every episode. And this week's Patreon shout out goes to Roberta Pereira, who is the managing director of the Playwrights Realm. And she wants to plug the International Theater Makers Award, which will share information on the legal challenges faced by international artists wanting to work in the U.S. and provide assistance in tackling them. Preliminary eligibility survey is now open through November 1st. And we'll have a link to the International Theater Makers Award on our website, tokentheaterfriends.com. I love Roberta, and because I love Roberta so much, I'm going to sing a song, and she's going to know why when she hears it. So, my love don't cost a thing, 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 thing. <laughs> Obrigado, Roberta. We love you. An- another housekeeping note. We will not be doing a podcast together for the next few weeks because Jose is taking a staycation because he has to teach at the Kennedy Center. So it's like a state Kennedy vacation. Do you want to tell our listeners what we will be doing instead of a, a podcast together? This is not going to be like an empty friend zone. Like there's still going to be a lot of new stories for you. Like we're both working on different things like I did and I'm going to schedule some interviews that I've done with people like uh, Grace McLean and Victoria Casares. And you're working on stories on your own. Like. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on stories about why there needs to be federal funding for the arts and what people are and other angry things about the current state of the theater industry. <laughs> I mean, at least you have American Utopia to like make you happy after you're done. Exactly. Spike Lee, direct more theater. <laughs> All right. So we're just telling you that this is not a permanent breakup. We're just taking a break. Just living our own separate lives. And then we'll continue recording sometime in after Thanksgiving. Most likely, yeah. When we're both going to be fatter. Do you have anything else you want to say to people? I'll miss all of you, but uh, we'll be back. And wish me luck. Have fun at the Kennedy Center. I mean. You're so fancy. I'm still going to be in my apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> but thank you. I'm going to wear like my pink pillbox hat and like my Jackie O Chanel. <laughs> I object. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. See you next time. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.